You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Today's reading is from Genesis 9, 8 through 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. And would you stand for the gospel reading? Today's gospel reading is from 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The Gospel of the Lord. Thank you, darling. And everyone, please remain standing. I want us to have baptism in mind. I want us to have beasts of the earth in mind and Noah in mind as we read the short version of the baptism of Jesus, which is the scripture that we always read on the first Sunday of Lent. And this is in Mark 1, 9 to 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. We have to hear those words. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals, and angels were ministering to him. Heavenly Father, I pray right now as your word goes forth that you would anoint me to make preaching easy, and you would anoint your people to make hearing your word a delight. 
We pray that the gospel would go forth in all churches today and that your people would receive it with gladness and that it would perform a work in our souls that whenever we leave church, we would be able to love our neighbor as ourselves a little bit better today than we did yesterday. And we bring glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Jesus, thank you for forgiving us. Thank you that our sin is finite, but your forgiveness is infinite. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated this morning. It is so good to see some faces in the room. It is so good to be seen by you online. We're glad that everybody is here. Uh, Before I even begin, I want to sincerely thank Elder Ron Green for doing an amazing job last week on Valentine's Day. You didn't make a joke about me not being here for Valentine's Day. I do owe you something. We will not tell the people what we bet on, and we won't even tell them that we made a bet. This is a private conversation between me and you because we don't gamble. We offer things when we lose. <laughs> we don't gamble. <laughs> That's how you just have to spin things with the Bible. It, it, makes, it makes life easier. But anyway, you did, you did an amazing job. And like I said to you personally, I want to say publicly now, it feels very comforting to be able to take time off and then be able to sit underneath somebody else's teaching and learn. I mean, I felt the Spirit talking to me. You know, I I think there's probably been 15 times in the last four years where I've heard a sermon, and it was wonderful to sit under something that I can say yes to, that I can trust, and that can bear fruit in my life. So thank you. Jacqueline and I both thank you for that. And let Essie know, I mean, I don't think she was too upset to have you out of the house for a little while. COVID's probably been rough on Essie with you in the house. But we love you, and we love Essie, and... So if you don't know by now, we are in a series called Strengthen Our Hands for Rebuilding, and we're entering into a version of that sermon, of that ongoing series called Strengthen Our Hands as Lentecostals. Everybody say Lent. Everybody say Pentecostal. Now say Lentecostal. We're making up words as we go because we're a non-denominational church and we're allowed to do whatever we want. And so we're making up words, Lentecostals. We can't divorce, we can't divorce any of the church seasons from any of the other church seasons. All of Jesus is in all of the seasons. Every bit of Jesus is in every bit of your life. Every bit of the day is in every moment of the day. That's why some of the prayers in the prayer book say, Lord, Guide us waking and guard us sleeping, and we pray in the morning and the evening, because the whole day is in every moment of the day. Even though we celebrate Christmas, there's undertones of Easter. Jesus wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger, and then in Easter, he's wrapped with a shroud and he's laid in a tomb. There's undertones of every season in every season, and I want to go through the season of Lent celebrating the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. I feel very strongly that as a church, we need to focus exclusively on the part of the Godhead known as the Holy Spirit. Amen? We need the Spirit to bear fruit in our life. We need to be intimate with the Holy Spirit. We need to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. Has anybody accidentally gratified some of the desires of the flesh this COVID season? Am I the only one who's telling the truth? We need the Holy Spirit so that we can walk with him to just not have to get the last word, to not have to have the extra slice of pie, pizza pie, regular pie. I gave up pizza for Lent. That was a bad choice. Somebody pray for me. You know what the devil would have told me to make if I was in the wilderness? Turn this stone into pizza. I'd have been like... 
That's my whole sermon, so thank you for coming. No, I'm just kidding. One way we rebuild the walls that have been broken by COVID, by not being able to be together, one of the ways we rebuild those walls is by repenting. But repenting as a revelation of the Holy Spirit's work in our life. There have been teachings that have said, you draw near to God by repenting. You get closer to God by repenting. And I want to submit in this sermon that that is not true. We repent as fruit of God having drawn near to us. We repent as the, as the offspring of what happens when the goodness of God takes over my life. And the only response back is, I want to change my life because this is so good. So we don't repent to get closer to God. We repent precisely because God has drawn near to us. Luke says, uh, John says in Luke 3, 8, John the Baptist says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I said this on Wednesday night and it bears repeating. Repenting is used here as a gardening analogy. Repenting isn't something we do once and then we never have to think about it again. Repenting is something that is all of our earthly life that is slow and methodical and it takes constant care and constant attention and there's times where there's fruit and there's times where there's not and we have to continually cultivate our hearts. This doesn't mean that we have to constantly bring up past things that we've done wrong. The things we've done wrong are the results of our sin. The last word the extra slice of pizza. They are the results of our sin. Our sin is any time we thought that we could fashion something in our life that would fulfill us only the way Jesus can. That's what sin is. Sin is the yes that there's something I can make for myself that will give me the fulfillment, the entertainment, the fun, the affirmation, the quality of life that only Jesus can give. Everything else we do is offspring of that thought. So we don't need to constantly be bringing up the things we've done, but we constantly need to be cultivating the reality in us that left to ourselves, we will fashion things to be our Christ, to be our Savior, to be for us the thing that makes us more of who we are. And if it's not Jesus, it's idolatry. The very first temptation of Jesus in the wilderness is Satan telling Jesus to do exactly what Jesus does, make things new. Take this stone, make it bread. And what is Jesus' response? I don't have to make myself something. God is already giving me something. Every man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. I'm already getting my food, Satan. I don't need to fashion it for myself. Jesus is living free from sin because he doesn't make for himself what only the Father can give him and what the Father's already giving him. And as Dietrich Bonhoeffer also said on our end, Jesus doesn't have to make what he already is, bread. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What does Paul say in Galatians? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. So, can they only have had like three? This is a lot, Jesus, to, to put on us here. Joy, peace, patience, like, okay, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So if we bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and when we bear fruit, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, all these things, 
then that means that what Paul is saying in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is the result of repenting. Repenting is the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Why? Because there's a world out there that God wants to feed with you. He wants to feed your family, your spouse, your friends, your coworkers. He wants to feed them with you. He wants to feed them with his life pouring out through your life. Somebody needs to eat something spiritual this week, and God wants it to come from you. A tree does not eat its own fruit. A tree offers itself to everybody else. And so the fruit of the Spirit is not for our betterment. The fruit of the Spirit in my life is for yours, and yours is for me. God wants to do more than just have you get by this week. He wants to do more than just have you have a good life. He wants your good life to become somebody else's good life. And we do that for the world and we do that for each other by entering into a safe and hospitable relationship with the Holy Spirit who's already drawn near to us by repenting. By constantly saying, I'm tempted every day to make something that looks like you but is not. What do we see in these two texts? In Jesus' baptism and in Jesus in the wilderness. We see something that I have never noticed until this year. Thousands of times since I've been a little bitty kid have I read these stories. And it just dawns on me this year that the primary work of the Holy Spirit is not us speaking in tongues. We already know that. It's not even us loving. It's not even us repenting. The first thing the Holy Spirit ever does is sends Jesus to where we're drowning and where we're dying in the wilderness. The first work of the Holy Spirit is not to beckon you to come to Christ. The first work of the Holy Spirit is to plunge Jesus down into the waters where we're drowning and send him out into the wilderness where we're thirsty. He sends Jesus down and he sends him out. Have you ever been down and out before? Jesus is going to both of those places. The Holy Spirit's work, first and foremost, is not to say you have to come to Christ. It's to say, I'm sending him to wherever you are and you can't stop it. The first human who obeys the Holy Spirit is not us, it's Jesus. Jesus says yes to the Holy Spirit so that his yes can be made in us. Jesus obeys the Holy Spirit so obedience can be created in us. um, Eugene Peterson said it this way. He said, Jesus is God's response to us, and Jesus is also our response back to God. How many are grateful that God sees Jesus' life and sees your response in Jesus' life? It's a little better than mine. It is the Spirit's work. We can't repent until repentance is created in us by the love of the Holy Spirit. We don't have the grace to say I'm sorry until grace is poured out on us by the Holy Spirit. And what does this have to do with us repenting? We need to live this way toward others. We can't demand that somebody change if we're not willing to offer the love needed for that change to occur. I'll be fine once you change is not what Jesus says. Ever times. Jesus says, I'm going to mutilate my, fr- my flesh so that I can create in you a new flesh. He offers himself so that we can say yes. 
Baptism is not the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus has been in ministry since Mary walked into Elizabeth's house and John the Baptist, as a fetus, was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has been in ministry since he was 12 years old, telling his parents, I'm already about my father's business. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand before he gets baptized. He's already in ministry. So the question is, why does he get baptized? He doesn't get baptized as the beginning of his ministry. He gets baptized to reveal to us the method of his ministry. Baptism is how he ministers. He breaks every conceivable system of what we think is good and right for people to get better. Have you ever met anybody who's socially awkward before? (laughs) His hand's up. His hand is up. That's why I'm laughing. I mean, you've met me. You've met yourself. (laughs) We bust on Ian so much. I don't consider myself to be a socially awkward person, but I have one story where I broke what was social non-awkwardness, I shattered it to a million pieces, and if it wasn't for loving friends, I would have been embarrassed for the rest of my entire life. In 2017, in July, I became the pastor here. My life was filled immediately with, I don't know who I am anymore or what's going on. And in October of 2017, I'm invited through the Order of St. Anthony, who I'm no longer a part of, but I was then, to go to Manhattan to go to this conference. And I meet up with all of these new people that I didn't really know very well, and they are all incredibly smart, but they're also classy people. And here's the thing about me. I'm not a classy person. I'm a fun guy. I'm not a classy person. I don't go to aromas. I go to Buffalo Wild Wings. Right? If we're really, really going to be romantic, like over-the-top romantic, we go to Stefano's that used to be friendlies. Like, this is what we do. I'm not a classy person. When I went to the Waldorf Astoria because somebody bought it for us for our honeymoon and they wanted to take my bags, I'm like, don't you dare touch my bags. Like, I don't belong here. This, is, this just doesn't feel like me. I'm sitting with classy people. I'm not a classy person. And we're sitting in a place called Bars and Books. It's some posh, ridiculous place where you can smoke cigars, drink scotch, and also read. I'm like, where are the TVs I think the Knicks are on? Like, what's happening here? And so I'm like, all right, I'm sitting there. I'm very uncomfortable because I don't... When, when there's... Like, there's a difference between being educated and being an academic. And academics talk so slow. Like, well, you know what I think about the Trinity. You want to tell us and not have, like, a to be continued every five minutes? Like, hurry up. So they're all having these conversations. Everyone's got glasses on the size of the moon. Like, I just don't even know what's happening. So I'm like, all right. I said uh, to the waiter, I was like, how much are your cigars? He's like, $27. I'm like, all right, cool. Secondhand smoke will be just fine. I'll just sit here and enjoy everybody else's. What is, why are we here? And then, and then I was like, how much is like the cheapest glass of scotch? He's like, about $25. I was like, a cup of ice would be just fine. Let it melt a little bit. So we're sitting there, and at one point I'm like, and I guess this is what people who feel awkward socially do. They go to the bathroom often so they can get out of there and talk to themselves in the mirror and be like, bro, you can do this. I know you, Bill. You can do this. So I, this is, I'm saying this isn't embellished. You do the math, whatever. I, I, I come out of the bathroom, and I'm going back to the slow-talking, intellectual, savvy, posh, hipster people that I'm with and Pastor Mark. 
And there's a woman sitting by herself with like one of those Marilyn Monroe long cigarettes. It looked just like a scene from Dick Tracy. She had a gigantic feather hat on and she looks up slowly and she's like, and I'm like, she's like, hey, sounds like you guys are having a conversation about God. Well, you can't slip anything past this chick. (laughs) You got it. And she's like, question, what's your take on God? There's 475 pastors over there. Like, what do you think? He's real. He's good. You probably need him. Like, so I sit back down and I hear everybody talking about, and listen to my words very carefully. You might begin to pick up on the socially awkward moment I had. I hear them talking about Nick Cave. Nick Cave, with a V as in Victor, who apparently, I found out shortly, he's some sort of blues rock artist from Australia. Is that fair? My wife is one of these intellectuals I'm making fun of right now. So I hear them talking about Nick Cave. Now understand the people I'm with and understand me. I'm a failure to launch Matthew McConaughey kind of guy. Like, I like to watch rom-coms and The Office. I'm not classy, but I hear them talk about Nick Cave. So I say, here's my in. I love Nicolas Cage, I say. I'm like, I leaned into the conversation, like, from the outside, like a streaker in the Super Bowl. I run in, and I'm like, I love Nick Cage. What's your favorite movie, Family Man? I love Family Man. Raising Arizona was pretty good, too, though. They're like, Chris Green, who's one of them, who I didn't know very well at the time. I'm surprised the man is still friends with me. He's like, he's like, Bill, Nick Cave. And I was like, oh, my God. I will have that $7,000 cigar, please, and your finest scotch so I can get out of this moment. And it was just one of those moments where nothing was the same after that. All of a sudden, they're outgoing, laughing people, and I just happened to be the reason that made them all no longer socially awkward, but hilarious jocks who are now stuffing me into a locker and making fun of me, Ian. That's my one story. Remember the time you said hi nobody heard you? Oh, I'm just kidding. Jesus does does this. He does the Nick Cage, Nick Cave thing, but he does it to the religious system. He ruins everything that is normal about it. He ruins every single idea that we have of what the structure should be. Everybody quickly, I'll, I'll reference this, know the story of the man who sat by a pool for 40 years, and he was lame, and he knew that if I can just get into the pool, I'll be healed. And every time he goes to get into the pool, he can't because somebody else runs down there and gets in there first. It's survival of the fittest. It's elitism. It's the people who are the most privileged can get into the pool first. And he just keeps sitting there hoping that someday, somehow, some way, all the privileged people get everything they need so he could jump into the pool. And then Jesus shows up. Now watch this very carefully. Jesus shows up and he says to the man, do you want me to heal you? And the man's response is this, I have no one to put me in the pool. That's not what Jesus asked. But the problem is, we can only answer according to the system that we've grown accustomed to. You see that? Do you want me to heal you? I have no one to put me into the pool. Take up your bed and go home. Jesus said, I like Nick Nick Cage. 
He breaks the system entirely, ruins the whole system. He says, pick up your bed and go home. He does this in the, in the River Jordan with John in the text we just read. John sees Jesus come and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what does John say to Jesus? I can't baptize you. You're the good one. You're the holy one. You're the righteous one. You're the one who holds all the cards. You're the one who's got it. You're the one with the power. You're the one with everything. I can't baptize you. And Jesus says, it's precisely the opposite of what you think it is. Because I'm the powerful one. Because I'm the one who holds all the cards. Because I'm the righteous one. I need to be plunged into the depths of your sin by you. What text did Jacqueline read in Genesis? People drown in the flood. And what does it say in 1 Peter? It says God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So even though people drowned, they weren't not yet judged. Why? Because when Jesus gets pushed down into the Jordan River, Peter likens this to the Noah story. When Jesus gets pushed down into the Jordan River, he goes down there to get everyone who couldn't get into Noah's Ark. He is buried underneath the rebellion and sin, muck and mire, idolatry of the world. And he says, this is what it looks like to be righteous. Righteous people don't get a special parking lot. Righteous people give up their spot. Righteous people don't have a head table made for them at every meal. They let people who no one knows sit at the head table. They're not the first in line, they're the last. They're not the ones who baptize. They're the ones who get baptized first. Why did Jesus get baptized into a baptism of repentance? Does he need to repent? No. He got baptized in the dirty water of repentance to clean the water for our baptisms. He got baptized in the muck of the Jordan so he could forever sanctify the water for our baptism. When does the Holy Spirit show up? The Holy Spirit shows up when the perfect, innocent, pure child of God refuses special privilege or anything else and goes down into the depths where nobody else wants to go, that is the action that tears heaven open, that causes the voice of God to speak and causes the Holy Spirit to show up. Actually, better said, that action of Jesus is what opens the heavens so that we could see what's always been happening. God didn't just become pleased with Jesus. Jesus didn't just get the Holy Spirit. The act of humility that prefers your neighbor as yourself is what tears heaven open so that we can see and hear God in all the ways that we see and hear him in Christ. When Jesus is in baptism, heaven is torn open. When Jesus dies on the cross, the veil of the temple is torn open. Whenever we descend to where the brokenness is and give up our standing and give up our place and give up our opinion, whenever we do those things, heaven is torn open over the lives of the people we do that for. Jesus is the light of the world. Whenever light hits water, what do you see? A rainbow. When God said to Noah, I'm putting my bow in the sky. Whenever water interacts with light, you'll know that I forgive you. And here comes the light of the world descending into the water. Jesus is the rainbow. And here's something else that's amazing about that that text, and the version that we used here was on purpose. Rightly said, God says to Noah, I've put my bow in the sky. We assume rainbow, and that's perfectly fine, but the word in the Hebrew is the word for bow. 
and it means something else. The etymology of the word has to do with a bow that doesn't have an arrow in it, an undrawn bow. In other words, God is saying, you think I'm standing here like this, but when I show you my judgment, it's a bow that doesn't have an arrow in it. I'm not here to shoot you. I'm here to redeem you. I'm not here to pierce you. I'm here to get pierced for you. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to be the ark that actually opens. Picture, picture Jesus standing on the water and Peter drowning. And here's the ark that actually is open, reaches down into the water and pulls somebody out up into it. Jesus on, walking on the water is the true and better ark that wasn't shut tight, but was open to receive those who are drowning back in. What do we have to repent of? Lord, show us the ways that we can descend into the brokenness of other people so that heaven is torn open over their life and they can hear the word of God say, you are my beloved son and daughter in whom I am well pleased. We are the portal that will enable people to hear those words. For whatever reason, one of my favorite Chris Green quotes is that God is not efficient. And I was like, how can you say God's not efficient? Chris says he chose you to be a pastor, right? Punk? Yes, good point. I get it. God has, Jesus has left this whole thing in our hands and has given us his spirit because the way he wants to convert the world is not through coercion or threat, but through the Holy Spirit's fruit working into our life by us going down into the depths and getting other people, not judging them, but getting them and bringing them back up. Love has a funny way of yielding repentance where threat doesn't. Threat causes people to dig their heels into where they already are and say, you're not going to make me budge. But love causes all that to come unhinged. But then what happens? Jesus comes up out of the Jordan. You're my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I could hear Stephanie singing over Jesus' life. Jesus got his ear pods in and he's singing, I got my best life now. To Stephanie. Stephanie's singing in Jesus' ears. And Jesus like, this is great. I've done, all, I've done all the obedient things. And now what's the Holy Spirit going to do? The Holy Spirit drives him, drives him doesn't politely take him, takes Jesus like the stone in David's sling and tosses him out into the wilderness. Why? Why? Because this is all the Spirit's preeminent initiating work. The Spirit first takes Jesus and plunges him down to people who are broken. There are people who are so broken they can't repent. There are people who are so traumatized, they can't let go. And the church's job is not to go make their behavior change. It's to go love them in this disgusting mire that they're in, knowing that the love of God has a funny way of making all things new. Jesus doesn't go down there. And what does it say? It says on Holy Saturday, it says that he went down into the earth and he led captivity captive. He didn't set the captives free. He took captivity itself and said, you're mine. You're not going to do what you used to do. Now all you're going to do is free people. He led captivity captive. He took captivity and said, there is no more captivity. That's what Jesus does. He goes down into the depths and he preaches the gospel so well that people say yes. And he wants to preach that gospel through our lives, through our actions, through our thoughts, through our intercessions, through our prayers, through all the gifts and work of the Holy Spirit. Sends Jesus out into the wilderness where Jesus is with the wild beasts. How interesting is that? 
when you look up what these wild beasts are, the number one animal that was considered to be a wild beast in that wilderness at that time was a serpent. So here's Jesus being tempted with quite possibly snakes all around him. Who did he just get tossed out to rescue? Adam? Eve? And what does it say in Genesis 6? Has anybody ever gotten ambitious and read Genesis 6 where it says, and the angels came down and fell with the daughters of man, and they produced giants and stuff? Weird verses. But here's Jesus now out in the wilderness. Let me limp over here at my boot real fast. Here's Jesus. And just so somebody knows, I didn't forget to wear shoes the other day. I had a boot on. Somebody asked me, like, did you only wear one shoe? I'm like, no, it's a boot. My face is up here, please. <laughs> Why'd I go over here? Oh, yeah. Jesus, Jesus is out in the wilderness with serpents and with angels. But what's happening? These wild beasts aren't destroying him. Can you think of anybody who was ever thrown, I don't know, into a den and there were wild beasts down there and they didn't do anything to him? That was prefiguring this moment where Jesus is now out in the wilderness with the wild beast himself, the devil, and all of his little minions, and they're not doing anything to him. And the angels that have fallen are no longer doing anything but serving him. Why? Because Jesus didn't come to destroy rebellious people. Jesus came to destroy the one whose power makes us rebellious. That is a fact that I hope none of you ever forget. A wonderful theologian says it this way, there really are no sinners, only people who have been sinned against so much that they turn into sinners. <laughs> Every reason, ever notice, oh, we're in some deep waters right now, but this is fun. I got people back in the room again. I'm going to say all kinds of crazy stuff now. I was on point when nobody was here. Remember, Jeff? We had fun. Now they're all here, so the fun's over, I guess. Right, Jeff? Adam and Eve needed to be deceived because there was never anything bad in them in the first place. The only way that we could ever sin is when we're tricked. Adam and Eve weren't sinful. They were vulnerable. Because sinful, rebellious people without the devil would have just sinned on their own. But it took deception to get us to sin first. It took a trick, a halfback option pass, a flea flicker. It was the play action where everybody on the New York Giants runs this way and the ball is 85 yards downfield this way because we suck at playing football. It's a trick because the devil couldn't wait for us to sin on our own because we wouldn't have. We needed to be tricked into it. All sin, rebellion is really the lack of awareness that we're under powers that are deceiving us. So Jesus comes and his first encounter in the Gospel of Mark is not with a person, it's with the one who's causing people to sin. 
He wraps up the devil. The Spirit sends Jesus out into the wilderness where all of our failure has occurred. Think of your failure right now. Call it up into your mind. The first work of the Holy Spirit is to send Jesus out to where that happened, to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself, to end what's been happening to you, to thwart the the enchantment that the devil has cast over us. That's what Jesus does. He goes out to say, you have an abracadabra, but I have a thus saith the Lord, and now your time is done. That's what Jesus goes out in the wilderness to say. He removes the enchantment and all of a sudden the wild beasts are no longer violent. I think it would be said this way. The wolf has now lying down with the lamb himself. The angels are no longer fallen. They're serving him. Why? Because the spell's been broken. Jesus bound up the strong man in the wilderness and plundered him on the cross. He's sent out into your wilderness. I want to say this. Baptism is not the beginning of your Christian walk. It's everything of your Christian walk. And the wilderness is not your preparation for something greater. The wilderness is part of your something greater. It is not preparation for a higher level. The wilderness is the place where God has positioned you to recultivate the Garden of Eden where it has stopped growing. If you read Genesis 2, it says when everything was planted, nothing grew because there was no human to walk amongst the garden. Soon as Adam started to walk amongst the garden, everything in the garden began to grow. So prior to Adam, it was a wilderness that had in it all of the potential of a garden. And the minute Adam and Eve start walking through it in the image of God, plants start to come up out of this wilderness, and this beautiful garden is cultivated. And then Adam sins, and what happens? Thorns and thistles are produced. You get people in the room, and all of a sudden, everybody's phone goes off. All of a sudden, thorns and thistles start to destroy the garden. What happens when Jesus shows up? Jesus, the first place he goes into a wilderness, and he says in the wilderness, we're going to bring streams in the desert. Hot springs in the wilderness. How many like hot tubs? Nobody likes hot tubs anymore? Is that like, that's not a thing anymore? Whatever. I thought that point would land, but it hasn't. So that's fine. We'll move on. Jesus is sent out there to cause the garden to grow once again. You're in the wilderness not because you've done something wrong. You're in the wilderness not because of rebellion. You're not in the wilderness to be prepared for something greater. You're in the wilderness because Jesus is getting thrown out to where you are. And when you and Jesus meet up in the wilderness, the wilderness changes. We've become the kinds of people who think, I need new circumstances. I need a new living arrangement. I need to physically move for things to get better. That is not how the gospel works. That's how the Old Testament worked. That's not how the gospel works. The gospel says, I'm not going to change. I'm not going to get you out of one circumstance into another. I'm going to change you in your circumstance so that your circumstances begin to be cultivated differently. That's the difference. Paul and Silas are in prison, and before they walk into that prison, there's only prisoners in there. See, man, I want you to hear this. Paul and Silas and Acts go into prison, and before they walk in there, there's only prisoners in the prison. Everybody in the prison wants to get out. Is that fair to say? Everyone in the prison wants to get out. Paul and Silas get thrown into prison. They don't say God's preparing us for something greater. They say, this is the great place we're supposed to be. So they start singing unto God and praising. And it says the prisoners heard them. And then we all know the verses. Suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the prison doors were open and everyone's bands were loose. 
closed. The shackles came off. The guard runs in and says, oh my God, Caesar is going to murder me because I let all the prisoners escape. He flips on the lights, which they probably didn't have electricity, but that sounded cool anyway. He flips on the lights and he says, where are you? And Paul says this, we are all still here. Before Paul and Silas got into that prison, if those prison doors open, everyone would have run out because they were prisoners. Prisoners want out. But when the gospel came into the prison, the prison became a garden. And even when the doors opened, the prisoners stayed because they were free. They had gotten freed before the bars ever opened. They got freed before the handcuffs ever fell off. Because the gospel doesn't get you into new circumstance. The gospel transforms the hell of your wilderness into Eden through the fruit of the Spirit coming off of Paul and Silas, coming off of Salem Tabernacle, coming off of wherever you are, wherever you're positioned in life. The devil wants us to think that we need a new positioning. You're positioned where other people need you. We've made it all about us. Position me where I'm going to be successful. Position me where I'm going to be this. Position me where I'm going to get promoted. You're positioned to make the people that you're positioned around successful. You're positioned in prison, Paul and Silas, to sing so well and praise so well that even when prison doors open, prisoners are already free and they're sitting down. Why? Because they love the jailer more than themselves. It said the jailer was going to commit suicide because what would have been done to him would have been worse than him killing himself. And instead, him and his whole household got baptized. From suicide to baptism because prisoners loved their neighbor so much that they stayed in prison as to help him not get in trouble. Sometimes we want an exodus when God wants us to have an incarnation. We want to get out of something when God sent us there to help other people get freed from whatever it is they're bound by. Some people, like the Israelites, get into the wilderness and they have no presence. So what does the Holy Spirit do? He takes Jesus like David Stone and he throws the tabernacle into the wilderness so that in that place of feeling like I have no presence, feeling like I'm alone and Salem, it's us. I'm sure all of you struggle with it. People across the world are struggling with it right now. The isolation, the alienation. It is people needing tabernacles thrown out there. Jesus is the true and better tabernacle who's not made with human hands but is himself everything that that tabernacle was pointing to and he's thrown by the Holy Spirit into your life to be with you in your place of loneliness. Not to take you from that place of loneliness and put you with other people, but he's out there to turn the place of loneliness into a crowd just by himself. That's what he does. He doesn't want to just do that for you. He wants to do that for you so well you do it for somebody else. Jesus goes into the place of hunger. There are people who are so hungry to feel right about themselves, so hungry to have a better self-image, so hungry to like who they see when they look in the mirror, so hungry to not feel like their life was a failure because some of them are deceived even by religion into thinking that everything that's gone wrong in their life is 100% their fault, and if they did everything right, it might have just been a tiny little bit better. It's a hopeless, fresh, and then people who don't know God, even worse, they don't even know how hopeless they are. So what does he do? He sends Jesus out into the wilderness, not to make bread, but to be bread. 
to be the thing. Jesus says, it's not about what you think it is. Hunger is not about that bread. It's about my word. It's about my voice. It's about the voice that you just heard. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That was food for Jesus. Jesus said to the disciples in John 4, they came and tried to bring him food. Jesus just ministered to the woman who met him at the well. And the disciples come to him and bring food. And they say, Jesus, would you like to eat? You haven't eaten in a while. What does Jesus say? He said, I have, my food is to do the will of God. Jesus said, my tummy isn't hungry because I just ministered. There's something about the work of the ministry that is more filling than food itself. Jesus was stuffed because he had received and spoken the word of God to a woman who was hurting and alone and tired of life that has been nothing but tragic to her. Jesus is full. He's come into your hunger not to give you the things you think you want, but to give you something so much better than you could ever have imagined. And when I say it out loud, his voice, his presence, it feels either familiar or a little disappointing to us. That's why the church is giving us Lent. So we can say, God, change my taste buds. So if pastor spoke about real food, it wouldn't turn me on as much as when he talks about you. There's simple things in the church that we can say. He made a way where there is no way. And without drums and Stephanie's amazing talent and cymbals crashing, if I say it right now, yo, he made a way where there is no way. You're not jumping up onto your feet because the familiar of God doesn't excite us anymore without all the extra frills. That's what we're here for. We're here to get readjusted to the things that we no longer find exciting about God. We don't need the preacher to tell us new revelations. We need the spirit to recultivate our heart so simple revelations get us excited again. That's what we need because we don't want to be high maintenance. Nobody likes a high maintenance person. I was with them at Bar and Books. It's just so exhausting. Just give me 12 boneless teriyaki wings and some of that awesome strawberry iced tea that Buffalo Wild Wing has, and I'm happy for days. The place of thirst. I, I've, I've been excited to tell you this. The place of thirst Jesus is sent to. And when you think about the Israelites in the wilderness, they said they were thirsty. And what does God send water out of? You know, they've seen that rock so many times. There's something in your life right now that you will look at a thousand times and never once even consider the possibility that that is what Jesus is going to feed you from. Because water's not supposed to come out of that. We spend all of our life labeling what is in our life as good and bad. Okay, you know, the rock is good if I need to hide behind it, but it's certainly not good if I'm thirsty. That's not an irrational thought. And so we, we pragmatically label all these things in our life and say, okay, God, you can work through these things, but you can't work through these things. And these people you can't work through. These people you can. And we start telling God who he can and cannot work through. This is the God who has an ocean that feeds somewhere upwards of over a million people in it, a rock that has enough water to feed a lot more people that are in this room right now. There's something in your life that is sitting there right now and it's been staring at you for a very long time, a situation, a person, a circumstance, and that is the thing that God is going to feed you from. But it never looks like it because God is a God who's so romantic, he only ever wants us to be surprised. Slow down 
and realize here's what the Holy Spirit is doing this Lenten season. He is sending Jesus into your life to reveal to you amazing prizes and presents that you don't even know you have in your life. Things that just one little tap and water is going to come gushing out. One little intercession, one little prayer, just paying attention, one comment, one renewed thought, and water is just going to start pouring out of something that you thought was a thorn in the flesh, but it turns out to be something that's been positioned to feed you that you never would have expected. Some of you already know what it is. Some of you are going to be excited over the next 35 or so days to to have the Holy Spirit reveal this to you. The wilderness is the place where we're scatterbrained. Ever have so many things to do you don't know where to start? So you sit down and play roof rails on your phone for six and a half hours or something? Quasi eights? That was a joke from Brooklyn Nine-Nine if anybody watches that, but apparently you are all more holy than I do and don't watch a lot of TV. It's the place of being scatterbrained. Don't know where to start. Don't know what to do. What does God give the Israelites in the wilderness? He gives them ten commandments. But when he brings them the ten commandments, what are they doing? They're already breaking the ten commandments. Here's the order that you were looking for. Here's the rules that you needed. Here's the direction that you have to have. Here's what my heart looks like if you wrote it down in ten phrases. This is the ten commandments. If somebody said, what does the heart of God look like? Our answer now is Jesus. It used to be the ten commandments. And Moses sees them. He's got his Ten Commandments. He sees them. And on it, it says, Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. And Moses, the the pastor that he is, he comes down the mountain. He's like, oh my gosh, they are going to love this. First commandment, don't have any other gods before me. We got this. He walks down, and what does he see? Hey, Moses, this is a god that we have before us. Whap! And he breaks them. He breaks them. Why? Why? Because he needed to get rid of them so that the people weren't condemned for what they were doing. He acts like Jesus. The minute he has the law that's going to convict them of everything they're doing, what does he do? He takes it and he smashes it and he goes back up. And what does he bring down next? He brings down a new copy. This is going to hurt my foot. Ouch. He brings down a new copy of the Ten Commandments. But what are they in this time? I got a Bible scholar in the room. What are they in this time? Think Indiana Jones. They're in the Ark of the Covenant. They're hidden in a box. They're in Christ. Now, the written code that judges you is in flesh in the person that's died for you. So, the healing of scatterbrained is no longer a you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do this, you have to do that. It's take my hand, take my yoke, walk with me. My burden is easy. When you slip up, I'm going to grab you. When you succeed, I'm going to celebrate you. When you drown, I'm going to come get you. When there's no room for you in the ark, there's going to be room for you and me. When you're in the wilderness getting harassed by loneliness by a poor self-image, by the mistakes you've made, I'm going to come and I'm going to take care of it for you. That's what he's saying. That's what the Spirit is doing. And finally, and lastly, they fashioned an idol for themselves in the wilderness. And Jesus comes, and he's asked to fashion bread, and he says no. 
because his hands are the hands that have come to refashion us. Here's the reality. No one can repent apart from the Holy Spirit already working in their life. You wouldn't have the grace. You can't do it. No one can repent if Jesus doesn't first create that yes in you. We think of Mary, be it unto me, Lord, according to your word. God created a yes in her, and she offered it back to him. We can't say to people, repent, and then you can be close to God, because they need God close to them to be able to repent. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit's primary work is not to demand you follow Christ, but is to send Christ out to wherever you are to change you so that you follow him. And that is what he wants to do with this church. He wants to meet you this Lenten season in all of your pain, in all of your disappointment, in all of your anger, wherever you feel like you're drowning, wherever you feel like you're dry, wherever you feel like you're hungry or thirsty or lonely or scatterbrained, he wants to meet you in that place and get so close to you that fruit begins to grow in your life. He is the last Adam who walks through the garden of your heart and all of a sudden fruit starts to grow where there used to be thorns and thistles. Jesus dies with the thorns and thistles of Adam pierced into his head because he's walking through the garden of your heart and he's just taking all the thorns to himself. For what reason? So that you can walk into somebody else's life and do the same thing. Plunge into their darkness to go get them. Stand as bread in their hunger. Stand as water in their thirst. Stand as order in their scatterbrainedness. Stand as presence in their loneliness. Stand as one who's been formed in their idolatry. Not to point fingers and to tell them what they're doing wrong, but to love them so much you don't have to point a finger. Our heart is engineered to respond to love the way a child's ears are made to respond to the voice of their parents. I remember when Sophia was just born, you could tell the difference when a doctor spoke and when Jacqueline or I spoke. Her little eyes, you could tell she heard a voice that was much more familiar to him. Children, people say an infant doesn't know how to have a personal relationship. They might actually know how to have the personal relationships with their parents. I think when they get older, they lose their ability to have a personal relationship. Can I get a witness from a parent? Yeah, I'm looking at you. I'm just kidding. I'm looking at the Ulrich kids like, I'm not judging you. I just look to my right a lot. <laughs> like, oh my God. Our hearts are designed to respond to love. So let's let the Holy Spirit overrun us. What are we going to do? Three things we're going to do this Lenten season. One, I want every family in this church to give one meal a week to the needy. How do we do it? Look out the window right there. You see all the bags already starting to form on that table. I love it. That's the most gospel looking thing I've seen in a long time. Every week, for the next five weeks, I want every family to put something on that table for the needy. We're all fasting something for Lent. We're all happy to do that. None of us are hangry or crankry with low blood sugar right now because they gave up sugar drinks also. I'm going to be like a rail by the time this is over. I've lost seven pounds in three days. How much sugar was I eating? That's the problem. <laughs> Every time you fast, it reminds you next Sunday when you come to church or if you're watching from home during the week, you can stop in Monday through Thursday, put food on that table. We were giving it to Open Arms Food Pantry in Beacon. 
The second thing I want everybody to do is pray one simple prayer. All Lent long. Is it I, Lord? It's the prayer that disciples pray. It's the prayer that the disciples prayed at the Lord's table. One of you is going to betray me. Man, I feel like a lot of us Christians would have been like, him? We know who it is. Do you know they so didn't judge Judas that even, Jesus said, the person I give this bread to and he dips it in this cup is the one who's going to betray me. And Judas did, and the disciples thought he went to give money to the poor. They were the least judgmental people. It's probably why Jesus picked them. Look at the quality of the people he's picking. The person I point to next is Satan. I point to Betty, obviously. And every one of you thinks, oh, that Betty, Betty just left because she's a saint. Because none of you judge, even when Jesus said that one. They weren't judging. Why? Because they were more consumed with the thought, could it possibly be me? They were so consumed with the thought, could it be me, that they didn't even realize who it was. Can you imagine if the church got that attitude where we're so concerned we might be the sinner that we forget to call anybody else one? Can you even imagine how good and polite and hospitable the world around us would be if we acted like the disciples at the Last Supper, which is why we're about to come to it right now? And finally... I want us to give a meal a week to the needy. I want you to pray every day, many times, is it I, Lord? One thing, God, show me one area in my life over the next 40 days, just one, be easy, God, just one, one area where there's no fruit growing that there could be. That's it, one area. This next 40 days, reveal one area to me where there's no fruit where there should be, where there's thorns where there could be fruit. And then finally, fast as space for justice. And yes, that is a very ambiguous statement. And yes, this whole nightmare that we're in is a very ambiguous nightmare. Where are the causes? Where are they hidden? It's probably one of those things where when the weed pops up here and you start to pull it out, it unravels all the way around to the neighbor's backyard. We don't know. Everyone keeps saying, what is, what is the way we fix this, Pastor? It's very, very complex. But what we can do, I think there are some spirits that we can cast out. And I think there are some spirits, like racism, where Jesus would say this can only come out through prayer and fasting. So fast as space for justice. Ask yourself during the fast, one area, where is one area, God, where in the smallest way, or in the largest way, depending on what your area of influence is. And if it's only to talk to one person and hear them in a way you haven't heard them before, please understand, if it feels useless like a mustard seed, we got a story for that. God, all I can do is just this tiny little thing. Will it be enough? Read the parable of the mustard seed. I promise you it'll be enough. But one area, fast, not just for the success of not eating, but for the awareness of where we can bring justice to bear on the earth. Let's all stand to our feet this morning. Salem, it was, it was just so hard to stay in my time. It's so great to see you in the room. We're not all home. We're not home yet until all of us can be in this room. Amen. So before we leave, let's just pray for that. Before we come to the table, Holy Spirit, we pray first and foremost that you would allow this sermon, this word that you've given us to bear fruit in our life starting right now. 
I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just drive Jesus into our life. If we're deep under the water, drive him down into the depths of our drowning. If we're out in the wilderness, drive him to where we are. If we're lonely, if we're tired, if we're thirsty, if we're hungry, drive him to where we are so that he can be our satisfaction, so that he can be our fulfillment, so that he can be our food and our drink, so that we could be full to be food and drink for other people, to carry this vocation that we call the church, to be food and drink for other people. And we also pray, Father God, that you would continue to give everyone around us the wisdom they need to work through this virus so that your church can gather together again in full, Father God. We pray that things would happen and materialize so that we could go back to, we might not go back to all kinds of normal, but we want to go back to a normal that was this room is filled. We want to go back to a normal where we can have altar calls. We want to go back to a normal where we can baptize people. We want to go back to a normal where we can lay hands on the sick, lay hands on the broken, put oil on people, and and let the Spirit flow through this room once again in the way that it used to. I'm not ready to let go of that. I'm not ready to say, Father God, that that's going to change. I want to get back to the place where we can have these altars filled with families and children recommitting their lives to you having the moments that have held us together for all the years we've known you, Father God. So much of my life, all of my life, is held together at this particular altar that I'm standing in front of right now. And I'm not ready to say that it's not going to happen ever again. So we pray that you, you would help us do what needs to be done well so that we could all be back here, that we could all be at this altar and see what this new version of the church is going to be, how you've repaired the walls and made us new. Lord Jesus, we know it was on the night when you were betrayed that you took bread, and when you had given thanks, you broke the bread. And you said, this is my body which is broken for you. You never have to fashion anything for yourself again. You don't have to fashion yourself worth You don't have to fashion your own likability. You don't have to fashion your own meaning. You don't have to fashion your own affirmation. You don't have to fashion your own usefulness. This is everything you need, and it's offered to you in broken, acceptable form this night. Every time you receive this bread, receive it in remembrance of me. And after supper, you took the cup. And when you had given thanks, you said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is what you've been thirsty for all your life. This is what you've been trying to find at the bottom of every vice. This is what you've been trying to find in your anger, at the bar, with your friends, in relationships, in lying and greed and gossip and everything else that gives you the false illusion that you're not thirsty anymore. This is what you've been looking for. Every time you drink it, drink this to be remembered or reunited with me. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you descend on these gifts in this room, on this altar, in the hands of your saints and with everybody at home. Descend on these gifts and make them for your people, the body and blood of Jesus, the food and the drink of new and unending life in him, and sanctify us also right now. 
that we may worthily eat this meal and serve you in unity, constancy, and peace, and at the last day rejoice at your appearing. We say all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, by him and for him and with him and in him. And everybody said, amen and amen. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Would you partake with me this morning? Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.